0: Final study in Jesus' conversation with a Samaritan woman whom he met at a well. Uh, he was thirsty and she was there to draw water, and that providential meeting led to one of the longest and most profound theological discussions that is recorded in the Gospels. And notice that it wasn't between Jesus and a Greek scholar. And it wasn't between Jesus and another rabbi. No, it was between Jesus and a Samaritan woman who, after meeting Jesus and having this conversation with him, we read that she left her life of sin and immediately began evangelizing her neighbors. Her Samaritan neighbors were, as a result, the first to call Jesus the Savior of the world. I'm going to begin reading our text for this morning, uh, starting at verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now we note four important truths in this text about the Lord Jesus. The first is that Jesus is the Savior of the world, which we note in verses 27 and 42. And we find this truth in our text as a result of the tension between Jesus' disciples' reaction when they returned and found Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. And then the confession at the end of our text for this morning, verse 42, by the Samaritan townspeople that Jesus is, in fact, the Savior of the world. There's this tension between these verses in the text. Because when the disciples who had gone into the city to buy food, when they returned and Saw Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman, we read that they marveled at what they saw. This is a word that indicates that they were surprised, even shocked, that Jesus was speaking to a Samaritan woman. And we noted in our study uh, of the beginning of the conversation when her and Jesus uh, willingly crossed and uh, several. Uh, cultural uh, barriers in order to have this conversation together. And it was specifically Jesus that initiated it. Um, There are four specifically that are evident in the text that we've noted. There was first the barrier of her race, the fact that she was a Samaritan. We know that the Samaritans were considered inferior by many of the Jews in Jesus' day. There was a longstanding anger and hatred between the two groups. And it was for this reason that Jews often took one of the longer routes around Samaria in order to avoid having to travel through the area, to avoid even the possibility of encountering or, worse yet, touching a Samaritan. There was also the barrier of her religion, not just her race, but her religion. The religion of the Samaritans was a blend of the worship of Yahweh, the one true God, with pagan idolatry. It was syncretistic. You can imagine the religious tension that this created between the Jews who were trying to faithfully worship God alone, and then the Samaritans who were mixing the religion up and polluting the religion with false belief. And we see that that did not stop Jesus from talking to this Samaritan woman. In fact, we know that he sought her out because he came to seek and to save the lost. So there was a barrier of her religion, of her race, and thirdly, there was the barrier of her gender, that she was a woman. Why would this have been a problem? Well, it would have been scandalous, as we noted in Jesus' day, for a rabbi to speak to a woman in public. It would have dramatically tarnished Jesus' reputation. In the rabbinic writings of the Jews, it was forbidden to speak with a woman in public, even to greet a woman in public. The rabbis considered dialogue with women to be foolish and even evil. Some held that it was a waste of time for a rabbi to talk much with a woman, even his own wife. And they reasoned that this was because it would distract him from studying the Torah, which is the first five books of Moses. They had all kinds of reasons for this this way of thinking. But it was a gender barrier that Jesus overcame. And lastly, it was the barrier of her sin. And this would have posed a great barrier because we know that her sin was not a secret. Her sin was known by all her neighbors. She had been married five times and she was now living in an adulterous relationship and you know, the disciples probably didn't know all the details about her past, but the fact that she was alone and in public <clears throat> and speaking to another man, <clears throat> you know, that would have raised eyebrows in Jesus' day, what the disciples saw going on at the well. And so we read in verse 27, as we take all this into account, that when the disciples returned, they were shocked to see that he was talking with this woman. But none of them asked the woman, what do you seek? And none of them asked Jesus, why are you talking with her? Their shock and surprise, however, reveals what they were thinking in their hearts. See, in their minds, Jesus was wasting his time. They knew all about these barriers that we just described and To them, a Samaritan woman like her could not understand the things of God. She was essentially unredeemable to them. And that's why the rest of our passage reveals the beauty of this woman's true faith and and how it is revealed in her testimony to others about Christ, to her neighbors, as she goes and tells them about Jesus And to the point here where, as a result of her testimony, we know that many of her neighbors also put their faith in Christ. And we find their beautiful confession there at the end of verse 42. And we know, they said, that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, the word world there in this context does not mean that Jesus is the Savior of every single person who has ever lived but it means that Jesus is the savior of all kinds of people, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's actually similar to the way it's used in John chapter three sixteen, which, in the context we know is in the context of a discussion between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. We read these very familiar words in John chapter three verse sixteen: "For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him." should not perish but have eternal life. This verse explains that God loves all kinds of people, that his love is not confined to a certain race or to a certain gender, but he loves the world, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. His love is not confined to race or to ethnicity. And this is all foreshadowing what would become apparent to his disciples on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost when Christ sent his Holy Spirit to fill believers. And notice in the account of of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which we're going to read in just a moment, notice how as Luke describes that momentous event, that momentous day, Luke goes out of his way in Acts chapter 2 to emphasize how many different kinds of people experience the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. We read in Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And notice now all the countries that Luke lists, all the different places where these believers were from. Verse 7, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia? Judea and Cappadocia Pontus and Asia Phrygia and Pamphylia Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes Cretans and Arabians we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and they are from Jerusalem from that gathering the Christian faith began to spread, as we read from Acts chapter 8, to spread to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. To the point where the Apostle Peter finally realized in Acts chapter 10, when after seeing Gentiles coming to faith, Peter finally realized this truth and said, I now understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable. To him. And this truth, loved ones, is represented in our own church, isn't it? Our membership here at at Grace represents many different cultures and, and nationalities and backgrounds. And yet, as different as we are, what unites us is our faith. It's our faith in Christ that has united us into the one family of God, the one people of God. The second truth we learn about Jesus in our text this morning is that Jesus is the Savior that we need to tell others about, which we see demonstrated in verses 28 through 30. We read there, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, a lot has been written about this little detail in verse 28, about the fact that this woman uh, left her water jar and went away into the town. I believe that it represents her enthusiasm and her joy as she at that moment realized, through the work of the Holy Spirit in her heart and mind, that she had been found by the Savior. Now, have you ever been so excited about something that you forgot about your surroundings, that you forgot about your trivial common things because you were so excited and focused on this one thing that was happening or that was before you. In describing the powerful effect of saving faith, a reformer named Johannes Ecclampadius, he writes, Consider how efficacious true faith in a person is when Christ is truly known. By no means will such persons remain idle, but despising their own affairs, they will care about this one thing, to proclaim the glory of God. The woman had left the town to draw water, hoping for some bodily refreshment. When she tasted some of the living water from the fount of life, she left behind her water jar. Now, Water jars are usually made of earth, and for that reason, they are symbols of our body. Therefore, when we begin to know Christ, we no longer make much of this body of ours. We leave this water jar behind. That is, we leave behind whatever concerns we may have been regarding uh, our temporal affairs. She was seized with such passion and filled with so much zeal that she did not give her water jar a second thought And he says, so it happens that we forget all earthly matters that we might gain Christ. Indeed, it is necessary that we leave behind our very selves. Is not the power of faith great. See, what Echolampotius points out is that once Christ takes hold of our hearts by his spirit, he becomes the priority and the joy of our lives. He becomes the pearl of great price. He becomes the treasure that is buried in the field. And there is, as a result of that, a radical restructuring of love and joy and affection for him in our hearts. Our old life and our old ways are pushed out. Are as laid aside as Christ begins to fill every crevice of our hearts with his joy and with his peace and with his own Priorities. In his sermon titled uh, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, Thomas Chalmers, who was a Scottish pastor in the 1800s, he explains that the way that we can expel the heart's desire for the things of this evil age, the sinful affections of our hearts, he says the way to expel these things is to set our affections on the superior joys and pleasures of God in Jesus Christ. To fill our hearts with the things of God. It's kind of like having a glass of water that the water is dirty. One of the ways that you can get clean water in there is to continue to pour pure water. And as you pour and pour, the dirt rises to the top and it spills out to the point where at You have just clean water in the glass. And that's what Chalmers is referring to here. And he says that we see this truth at work in the Samaritan woman's heart, who upon her conversion began to tell her neighbors about Christ because he had become the superior joy in her life. See, friends, before her conversion, her life was marked by sin and by shame. But after her conversion, her life was marked by a new affection, a new joy, a new pleasure, not for sin, but now it was for Christ. And notice how the evidence of the new life in her is displayed in her in evangelism. We learn from her example in, of her enthusiasm and her joy. We learn from her example that sharing our faith doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be complicated. We see that she didn't wait until she had all her theology worked out perfectly. We know that no one will ever achieve that. But we see instead that her testimony was rather simple. And the focus that she had was on bringing her neighbors to Christ. We see that she simply went into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Come and see Jesus, her evangelism, was simple. Very similar to Philip's, who we read about in John chapter 1. Remember Philip, we read in verse 43 that Jesus found Philip and said to him, Follow me, and then Philip, what did he do? He went and he found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what was Philip's response? Come and see. Come and see for yourself. And as we said when we studied there in John chapter 1, that passage, and it applies to this uh, testimony of the Samaritan woman, there is an example here that we can follow in inviting our neighbors to church. But there wasn't just a, a sense of wanting to share their faith, but in these, we see that they wanted to tell others about Christ and then to invite them to meet Jesus. And for us today, it means inviting people to church, inviting them to attend worship. This is actually a critical part of our evangelism, one that you know, is often sorely lacking in church history, but bringing people to church, people that we have already talked to about the Lord. Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 25 paragraph 2 explains the importance of joining a church if one wants to call himself or herself a Christian. We read there that the visible church which is also Catholic, that means universal, under the gospel, that is not confined to one nation as it was before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world who profess the true religion, who gather together with their children. It is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, outside of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And and the confession there is emphasizing the fact that it's in church that we grow in our understanding of our faith, as we hear the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. It's in church that we receive the sacraments, which are, the means of growth and grace that God has given us. And it's in church that we are shepherded by pastors and elders who are called by God to care for our souls. And it's in church that we fellowship with one another and sharpen one another and uh, teach one another uh, the word as we encourage one another from the word. All of these things happen within the context of the church. And so we see in the example of this woman and even of Philip. Come and see as they call people to faith in Christ and to meet Christ. The next truth we learn in our text is that Jesus is the Savior who affectionately draws people to himself by his Spirit. We read in verse 31 that the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They had, we know, gone into the city to buy food, and now they had set it before him, and he wasn't eating. But we know that Jesus, and the reason why he didn't eat, is he knew the spiritual importance of this moment. And so he took the opportunity to teach his disciples a very important spiritual truth. Because as we read in verse 30, Samaritans from the town began to come to Jesus, to approach him as a result of the Samaritan woman's testimony. And so Jesus said to his disciples in verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Well, remember, this is actually one of the patterns that we find throughout John's Gospel, that Jesus says something that refers to a spiritual truth, but his Hearers interpret it literally, and then as the disciples do with this saying, and then Jesus has to explain uh, what he means. So what did Jesus mean? He explains in verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus explains to his disciples that the thing that gives him greatest satisfaction is and in which his soul delights, is to do the work that the Father had given him. Remember that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Friends, you've felt this in your own life, haven't you? When something captivates you, it draws your attention, and your joy, and your focus, and you forget about eating, you forget about drinking, and you even forget about your surroundings. Some people call it that you're in the zone. Pastor Richard Phillips explains it this way. He says, Jesus felt this way about the saving of souls. What great news this is for us. Jesus' passion is our salvation. Jesus must have been watching the Samaritan woman on her way back to Sychar, excited at his knowledge that she was born again. Surely he asked the Father to fan the spark of her faith and bless her witness. Perhaps Jesus was thinking about his words of greeting to the people as she was, that she was going to bring. He was completely caught up in the spread of his gospel, so much so that when the disciples offered him food, and remember that Jesus was weary and hungry. He replied, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Jesus was exhilarated by the woman's new birth and her witness, and so he had no thought for any other food. See, loved ones, Jesus was so focused on accomplishing our salvation. He says, The work that he had come to do on earth as the second Adam, as Our obedient covenant head, that was his focus, and he was seeing it being fulfilled before his very eyes. The work that he, as he was praying to the Father in John chapter 17, verse 4, just before his arrest in Gethsemane, he said, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. And it was this work of our redemption, of our salvation that Jesus was speaking about when on the cross he said those three words, it is finished. As Jesus saw the Samaritan villagers beginning to come to him, he explained the urgency of evangelism to his disciples. He explained to them the spiritual significance of that moment, of what was taking place he said in verse 35, Do you not say there are yet four months and comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true one sows, and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus uses here the metaphor of gathering the harvest to refer to the ingathering of souls into his kingdom. He explains to his disciples that they don't have to wait to begin telling others about the good news of the gospel. He says the fields are now ready for harvest. Remember in verse 30 we read that after the Samaritan woman had gone into the village and and told her neighbors about Jesus, they began to come to him and now Jesus is telling his disciples, look up, look up, don't you see all the people coming to me? Today is the day of Salvation. This is the truth that he wants to get across to his disciples. And then Jesus explains what he expects from his disciples in verses 37 through 38. For here the saying holds holds true, that one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have Entered into their labor. Jesus explains that the way that God works to draw people to Himself is often a very mysterious way. Often, when people come to faith, they come to faith as a result of evangelism, of hearing the Word, or perhaps of hearing the preaching of the Word in church. That's the primary way that people come to faith as that preaching and that Word is made effectual through the power of the Holy Spirit. But often, when people come to faith, it's the result of several instances of having heard the word over and over. And you know, So often, loved ones, is it not true that we can feel like failures when we talk to somebody, a neighbor, a family member, a friend about Christ, and, and we see how hard-hearted they are and how they utterly reject it, and, and we kind of feel like, where did I fall short in that? Why am I a a failure? Why can't I do better at, at bringing people into the kingdom, perhaps? We might think so low of ourselves and sometimes we might think so little about the power of the Word and the Spirit. It can be discouraging. Beloved ones, we need to understand that God uses many means and will draw people to himself, will draw in his elect according to his own timing. I think of... The example of St. Augustine, whose mother, Monica, spent years praying for him and talking to him about the Lord. And for years, Augustine refused to believe. His heart was hard toward the things of God. Instead, he spent his youth in sinful pleasures. But there was this great turning point in Augustine's life. When he was 17 years old, he was a brilliant man by that age. He was already a professor of rhetoric. He was sitting in a garden in Milan, and he heard a voice say, Tole legge, tole legge, which means in Latin, take up and read, take up and read. Now, these words were probably shouted by a child playing nearby, but those words struck him with such forcefulness, we read, that they, in a sense, woke him up. They caused him to realize something that he had not seen during the duration of his life. Rather than dismiss what he had heard, he opened the Bible and read the first passage on which his eyes fell, which was Romans chapter 13, verses 13 through 14, which reads, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Augustine writes in his book, Confessions, which we had an excellent review of a couple of years ago in Grace Notes, Augustine writes, I had no wish to read more, and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart. And all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. And after his conversion, he devoted himself to God. He writes, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I once had feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. Loved ones, how many times had Augustine heard the word from his mom? How many times had he heard it from other believers? But it was at that moment. According to God's sovereign work and sovereign timing that his heart was converted. See, Jesus is reminding us here in our text this morning that our calling as believers is to cast the seed of the word, to faithfully raise our children according to the truth of God's word, to live our lives bearing witness to his word by the way that we live, and to trust that Christ will In his own time and by the power of his spirit, draw in his elect. The last truth we learn in our text is that uh, Jesus is the Savior whom we need to trust in. We see this in verses 39 through 42. And many Samaritans from that town believed in him as a result of the woman's testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him... They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believed, uh, but we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Many hear the good news we know, but not all believe as a result. We see here in these verses that the way that the Samaritan woman's testimony affected her neighbors, her telling her neighbors about Jesus moved them from simply knowing information about Jesus and moved them to then putting their faith in the Lord Jesus as the Spirit made that word effectual in their hearts. We see their words are, we now know, they said, and we know believe. Many hear the good news as the Samaritan villagers did, but not all trust in Christ. And we talked about the three essential elements of saving faith, and I want to just review them briefly. First element is knowledge, knowledge which involves knowing what scripture teaches about the way of salvation, that our salvation is through Christ alone. That's an essential element of saving faith, but we know that that is not sufficient for saving faith. Many people know what the Bible teaches about Christ, but they reject what it teaches. They know about Christ, but they reject him. Knowledge alone is not sufficient. The second element of saving faith is is assent. It means believing what the Scripture teaches is true about Christ. Assent is simply the approval or the conviction that the knowledge that I have of Christ is true. It means that you believe what the Bible teaches about Christ and his death and resurrection, that it's not just a myth, it's, it's not just a legend, but that Jesus really did live and die on a cross in order to atone for sin. But even this is not sufficient for saving faith, because Satan and his demons have knowledge of, and assent, and yet they do not bow down in worship. So what is the third essential element of saving faith? That it is trust. Trust, which involves walking in what you believe, receiving and resting in the work of Christ alone. And see, trust is essential because it means taking that knowledge that we know to be true and saying, uh, not only do I believe that it's true, but I believe that it's true for me. So we see with the villagers here. They personally trusted in Christ for their salvation, declaring him to be the Savior of the world. Loved ones, this truth is sure. The truth that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminding us of the good news that we have received in Christ and about how we are now to tell others about him. Grant us, we pray, boldness and many opportunities to share Christ with others. Lord, we pray for the word that we heard preached today and For the gospel message that we heard in the hymns and the prayers and the scripture readings. Lord, cause this word to be received by glad, obedient, and trusting hearts. May it not be snatched away by the evil one, nor fall on hard ground, or be choked by the cares and worries of life. Instead, water the seed of the word by your spirit, we pray, so that we may all truly profit from it and bring you glory and praise in our lives through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.